From Hype HQ in Chicago, Illinois, Startup Hype Man presents the Goat to Market Show. What's up, everyone? I am your host, Raj Nation, the founder and chief pitch artist of Startup Hype Man. This podcast is where we bring you founders, company leaders, and creatives who are building it, who are doing it, who have been there and done that. And they pull back the curtain on their go-to-market strategies so that you can build a venture that you love and become the GOAT of your industry. Want first listen on episodes before anyone else? Subscribe to our newsletter at StartupHypeMan.com. You will get alerts every Sunday morning when we release new episodes. All right, let's hear how today's guest is becoming the GOAT. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone from Scottsdale, Arizona, and currently residing in Redwood City, California. He is the CEO and co-founder of WorkRamp. Please welcome Ted Blosser. Raj, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you on here. He is Ted Blosser, like I mentioned, co-founder and CEO of WorkRamp. What is WorkRamp? Well, they are an LMS solution, one platform to power all your employee and customer learning, helping you boost employee performance and supercharge customer education with their learning cloud. So it's a way to get your team ramped up, onboarded, trained, and continuing to be the best performing team they can possibly be. WorkRamp has done a lot in not that long of time. They have managed to raise $67 million since their inception, just in the mid-aughts, I'd say, or actually I misquoted, the aughts are pre-2010, right? So (laughs) post-aughts, since their inception in 2015, they've been able to raise $67 million from the likes of Salesforce Ventures and others. On top of that, they've got over 100 employees at this point with a million plus users and over 600 customers. A lot of good stuff working in their favor. And today's conversation is one I think you're all really going to love because we are talking with Ted about how they scaled from 1 million to 10 million and what goes into that. So first off, Ted, once again, welcome to the show. Why is this on your mind and why is this important to you? Raj, I think that that one, that almost zero, let's call it zero to 10 million phase is crazy. And we're one of the weird companies that took forever to get to a million there are lots of uh lots of trials and tribulations almost had to shut down the company a few times and and it took us a while to get there but once we got there that 1 to 10 was a lot uh lot a lot easier for us and happy to just kind of share the differences between those uh let's call it two phases of the business yeah, and we're going to get a whole lot more into that, but let's take a minute and learn about you as a person. Now, before we went on air with this, you mentioned you actually were born and spent the first four years of your life in Taiwan. Now, that's, you know, you were very young at the time. I'm sure you have minimal memories of it, but what memories do you have of that time? And how do you feel that that early part of your life living there, what kind of effect or impact has it had on you overall? Yeah, for sure. And for for background, for anyone who can't see on video, I am uh, half Taiwanese, half American. My dad was an expat who lived out there um, um, and I've lived there for the first four years of my life. 
Um, and that's a great question. I think the big big impact on me was actually a cultural impact. I think having the discipline, my mom grew up in a, in a poor rural area of Taiwan on a, on a farm where they could barely afford uh, the fish they needed to put on their plates for dinner. Um, and she just had this extreme sense of discipline that she really instilled in me as I came back to the States. And I think that was probably the biggest impact on me personally is I've carried a lot of that, um, uh, let's call it culturally ingrained discipline into um, how we even work here today at WorkRamp um, and trying to build the best company we can uh, in our category. So great question though. Well, I'm going to fast forward it a bunch from there. Um, you went to college for electrical engineering and you are now a tech founder. When you were in college for electrical engineering, what did you think your career was going to be? Yeah, there's a really funny story around this. Um, you know, I, I was almost forced to sign up for double E because my dad was a double E. And he said, Ted, if I'm paying for college, all this money to a Wait, wait, is that, is that insider lingo for electrical engineering? You call it double yeah, E? Double, okay. double okay. E, double E. You know, <laughs> my claim to fame is I, the only position I ever won was the president of I triple E, uh, which is the, <laughs> the big club there. But that was probably the only thing I could win in college. Um, but, but to answer your question, there was this interesting point in time where we're all interviewing senior year. Everyone's going nuts at the career fairs. And I was interviewing at Cisco Systems where I got my first job and they said, hey, there's two lines here. Which ones do you want to interview for? I go, well, which one uh, makes more money? And they go, this line. And it turned out to be the account executive line. And I was supposed to be going down the the systems engineering line. Ah. And, and that actually just changed my career trajectory. I went, um, went down the wrong line, became an account executive, but a technical one. Um, and it really tra- changed my whole kind of career journey from there. Uh, but yeah, it was one of those things where it kind of just worked out after getting that degree and the background has served me pretty well through uh, the rest of the f- rest of my career. So talk us through the journey to starting WorkRamp. And, you know, I gave a, I gave a very, very quick background on the company, but maybe give our listeners a little bit more understanding of what WorkRamp is and how you even had the idea and decided to start this in the first place. Yeah, for sure. So we left, uh, me and my co-founder, Arshmand, he, uh, he was at Box with me as well. We were at Box. Um, I was there for about five years. He was there for about three and a half years. And, and I don't want to overlook, by the way, prior to Box, you were... Wait, unless Box was originally called Stuff Box, because you were also at another company called Stuff Box. That, that, that is Quinson's still on the domain. So if anyone wants to bid on it, let me know. <laughs> um, I was just cleaning that up the other day, my GoDaddy account. Um but yeah, you know, it was a failed. That was a failed startup. That's a, there's a great story around that failed startup. It was a Pinterest before Pinterest at the wrong for the wrong demographic. It was for men, 16 to 25. No one wanted to use it. Busted <laughs> pretty quickly. Uh, but then we. Um, then you said, "Hey, this other company has half of our yes. name. Let me go work there." <laughs> yes, exactly. A humbling experience. But I basically said, "Hey, I need to rebuild my savings. I need to get to a place where I can go learn from the best." And so that was why I joined Box. And then jumped into WorkRamp. But to answer your original question, we we spun out to go build WorkRamp actually very opportunistically. We said, hey, we have a skill set in SaaS. Arsh could build, I could sell and build product. And we said, let's go look opportunistically at very large categories that no one's really paying attention to. And so this reminded me of Jeff Lawson's story with Twilio. He did a similar thing where it, was, it wasn't like I had a background in education or my parents were teachers or had some crazy passion around uh, training. It was more around, hey, what is a big opportunity where we could go make a difference? And that was when we found this learning category 
that no one was paying attention to. And then it was off to the races from there. And I'm happy to, I'm sure we'll dive into a lot of the stories from there, but that was how we found the category. We just found a big one and planted our, our flag in it and started working, working our way up. And you really have worked your way up, right? Like, you know, Box became an early customer. I'm sure you were able to turn back to them and say, hey, work with us. But aside from that- Actually, lay, cu- lay, cus- lay customer with Box, they took like four years to sell. Okay. All right. So, okay. So it wasn't an easy turnaround and work with yeah. us. Okay. Um, so that's good to know. Um, Lattice, Outreach, some of these like major, like, you know, like enterprise tech companies at this point uh, are customers of WorkRamp. So let's kind of, let's, let's dive into our main conversation for today, which is that journey of scaling from one to 10 million. But what's interesting is we could have titled this scaling from zero to 10, but we specifically chose 1 million as the starting point. And that was you know, by your request, actually. So how would you characterize the difference between going from zero to 1 million versus one to 10 million? Yeah. Those are very distinct phases in the business. I remember our $1 million celebration. There's about eight of us went to Napa, got to hang out as a team. But that zero to one took about three years and had so many naysayers at that time. Like, look, this is three years going and you're not even at millionaire R. Like, I felt like I was disappointing um, investors and my employees. Like, that was a hard slog. And I had a whole set of challenges that were very, very different than one to 10. Once we hit a million, we kind of could see the writing on the walls like, hey, we can go hit 10. We just have to do X, Y, and Z correctly. Whereas zero to one is very uncertain. And, and we'll talk a little about that. That was our phase of getting what we call go-to-market fit. Um, and, and I like to say go-to-market fit instead of product market fit for certain founders, because a lot of the time it's more around go-to-market fit. Um, and so that was that zero to one phase. And then one to 10 was really about starting to learn how to scale. And that happened much more quickly for us. We went zero to one within about uh, in three years. And then we went one to 10 uh, within about um, uh, 18 months from there. And so that that shows you kind of the difference in scale of how long it took to get to that first milestone and then how much faster we could hit escape velocity afterwards. So let, let's kind of walk it back then. I, I think go-to-market fit is not a term that most founders are familiar with. They've heard product market fit. I don't like that term, but I do I do think this go-to-market fit is interesting. When you say that, what, you know, what do you mean and why do you think it's that versus product market fit? Yeah. So this is specific to, let's call SaaS companies who are building solutions in existing markets. And even if you don't think it's an existing market, it probably does exist by this point. There are very few SaaS companies that are that are kind of getting invented out of thin air that people haven't thought about or haven't tried to sell. And early on, I always thought that the, the product um, was always kind of there. It was like the LMS category itself was a 20-year-old category. And um, it was like, look, the the product's not rocket science. Yes, we are using new technology around it. We had the latest and greatest in front-end UI. We made it highly integrated, had a very data-driven. So all the things that maybe the, maybe the legacy incumbents couldn't have, but the product was more or less there. What we struggled with was how the heck do we sell this and bring this to market? I'll give an example. Mm-hmm. There's a point in time in around uh, 2016, 2017, where all in one day's work, 
I was selling to a nursing home in New Hampshire, a biking company, I think it's in Ecuador or Colombia, a trucking company in Chicago, and then Square, the company Square, mm-hmm. or now known as a, a Block, out here in San Francisco on an onsite. And so you could see how you have four different, uh, literally four different companies, four different personas within those companies, all different sizes, all asking for different things, all using the same product. And so that problem really perpetuated to why we couldn't really sell much. And I remember sitting down with uh, Steve Laughlin from Relate IQ one day. I called him up. I said, Hey, I need some advice. He brought me into the Relate IQ office and said, Ted, you are just all over the place with your go to market. <laughs> like, you need to go decide on. Go, he was like, Go to markets, plural. Like, <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, what are you doing? And he just wrote this simple chart on, on, on a white bar. I still remember it vividly. And he's like, look, here at Relate IQ, we say we go, we only sell to people under 100 employees that use Google apps. You can't even sign in without a Google app sign-in. And this is our target market. We're selling mm-hmm. to sales CRM buyers. You need to go figure that out for your category. And that's exactly what we did to go get to that go-to-market fit. And once we did that, there's, yeah, obviously a little tweaks on the product and we prioritize a few features over other features that were, let's call a little more specific to the go-to-market that we were going after now. Um, but from there, that's how we we start to scale from, uh, get to one and then scale from one to 10. Yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you a related anecdote that I can share from personal experience. And I, I may have said this in some episode in the past, but uh, my first business, well, we, and this was on a much smaller scale, but we struggled with that same thing, which was like, who is the right buyer for this? And the moment when we knew we needed to shut it down um, is we were, we had an exhibit booth at two different conferences on back to back days. Thursday, we were at an ed tech conference selling, you know, we had developed this, this, this personal branding program, basically. And so we were at this ed tech conference and we were there being like, oh, there are people here who are looking for jobs. They need to have a personal brand in order to get hired to these companies, et cetera. The next day we were at, it was called the Google Lake Effects Conference, which was for artists, creatives, and creators. And we were selling the same, you know, we were promoting the same product at our booth there being like, oh, if you're an artist, like you got to like have like a brand, right? And we yeah. had the exact same product, two different markets. And then we came back on Monday and we were like, what are we doing? <laughs> now we ultimately like, you know, we, we tanked the whole thing, but you, you plowed through. So I am curious, like, why, like, why didn't you just give up in that moment and be like, we don't have, we don't have a market for this. We can't figure out our market. We're doing the wrong thing. You know, you actually, you persisted. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're spot on. And we persisted and there's a lot of turmoil internally figuring that out. It's like, Hey, cause once you, the, the counterintuitive thing is as a startup founder, and you've probably heard of like the Paul Graham, um, uh, trough of disillusionment where it's like, you mm-hmm. think you're going to take over the world and you drop into this trough of sorrow and then kind of work your way back up. I was basically, when we were working with all the personas, we thought we we're going to take over the world. We could serve all the personas. And then we yeah. dropped into this trough of disillusionment and working your way out was choosing one of those personas. And it was hard. It was like, we had to get people on the bus and off the bus. Some people off the bus who self-select is like, look, I'm not, I'm not buying into just this one persona. And it seems like a small vision, but it's what we had to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And, but it was pretty obvious. We kind of knew it the whole time, which was, which ended up being the sales enablement persona at companies under 250 or 300 people. Like that was, and and mostly high tech Bay area. That was how focused we got. 
And, um, and, but it felt right. We kind of knew that in our heart of hearts the whole time, but we were afraid to jump all in on that, but we knew it was there, but it was like, do we have the, um, um, do we have the guts to actually go make the move? And we had to, it was kind of like, look, if we didn't do this, there's no way we were getting to our series a and time was time was ticking and we had to make a decision and make a bet. So that was a bet in and in and of itself. I think it's so important that you had to make that bet. And here, and here's the challenge when you don't know who your specific market is, is there, there's a difference between good revenue and bad revenue, right? Like good revenue informs your next decision, bad revenue distracts you from it. And it can be really hard if you, if you, if you're, you know, you're kind of being pulled in four different directions at once, because whichever direction you choose, you said it takes guts to do that. It really does because you're also saying, I'm going to intentionally sacrifice these other three things that have paid me money. Even if it's not good money, it's like, you're trying to keep the thing afloat. And you're like, I'm going to sacrifice these other things that have paid us money and could still pay us money to just go all in on this one area. Um, that level of specificity is required, but it's not easy if you if you have that pulled in multiple directions base that you're coming from. Yeah. I remember... I remember sending uh, my co-founder the podcast from a uh, Kyle Porter at Salesloft, and I think it was like seven or eight million ARR he was already at before he he pivoted over to Salesloft. And I was saying, hey, if this guy has the guts to switch over at seven or eight million, we're at, we're at like we're at like a hundred thousand ARR yeah. or two hundred thousand ARR at that time. It's like, if this guy has the guts to do it, it's like, we should have the guts to go make a bet like that, right? And so there have been people who have made big bets, even companies. I was watching the the Kings Warriors game uh, the other day and mm-hmm. Dial Pat's sponsoring the Kings. So I looked up Dial Pat yeah. <laughs> and I was like, dang, this comes at 200 million ARR and the CEO, Craig Walker, is burning the ships on AI. I'm like, this guy is crazy, but it's crazy how... How um, how much conviction some of these founders have to have or do have, and they push that through the company. That's a big bet. This guy could is betting the whole farm on the AI push. Not like everyone else who's just kind of dipping their toes in the water, but it shows yeah. an example is like, hey, you have to make these big bets at certain points in the startup journey. I noticed that as well. I was like, oh, interesting. The Kings jerseys are sponsored by Dial, and it's weird because it's like that's a name I I see every day almost, right? Like yeah, tech. Like I'm I'm used to seeing sponsorships being like major insurance companies or whatever. And then I'm like, oh, yes. dial pad. That's interesting. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, they're no, that's a lot right. bigger than I gave them credit for if they can sponsor NBA jerseys. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, our, one of our investors is, is Vivek, Ron Diva, the owner of the Kings. But I was like, where, where are my tickets, man? Like, where, <laughs> no, no tickets, no tickets, no Jersey logos. But maybe, maybe in the future, we're aspiring to that. Okay. So, you know, you, you create this specificity. So now what changes once you cross a million dollars? Yeah. There was there was a lot of change past a million. I could talk at a high level about some of those changes and then some of the some of the things we ran into. But once you hit a million, um, that one to ten journey almost feels a little bit more like autopilot, but it's all about distribution scale. And so by the time we hit a million, when we hit a million, we were about about 12 to 13 employees. And then one to 10, we went from uh, 13 employees. I'm trying to think back now to about, uh, I think it was about 60 employees by the time we got to um, 10 million, 50, 60 employees. And then that time is all about building all the different functions and getting ready for scale and just getting the repeatable model going. And so you'll hire and fire some sales reps 
you will build a, build out your first CS team for real and start maybe even segmenting that CS team. You now have more than three engineers. Now. So before literally when an engineer would go on vacation, we would freak out, right? Because you literally didn't have a tendency. <laughs> um, but that one to 10 period was all about the scale that we need to hit and then figuring out, hey, what what works and what doesn't work in that scale. And that's actually, we have a ton of learnings from that, but it felt a lot less existential. I actually slept way better at night, one to 10, than I slept zero to one, right? Mm -hmm. Way less stress. And it's more about just figuring the things out and you have a few more shots and a few more kind of uh, arrows to to shoot at the, your, at the target because you, you have some more flexibility to make those mistakes. And is it because you've you've got that foundation in place now and you're not like, I don't, I don't want to sound like crass in saying this, but like, you don't have to worry about the next dollar, where the next dollar is coming from as much. Is it like, is it that where you can sleep easier? Yeah. I would say to be very specific, the, the, the point where we really felt comfortable is after our series B. So our series A, you raise 8 million, um, and 8 million bucks, you can only make a few mistakes, um, and die. <laughs> <laughs> then when you raise your series B, so we raised our series A in April, 2019, we raised our B, um, a little bit after the pandemic. So that was uh, November, 2020, and that was a $17 million series B. And that was right around, um, uh, 4 million ARR. But once we got that to that scale, you kind of knew you weren't going to die unless there's something existential like the SVB crisis, mm -hmm. which was which probably caught us all off guard. But after that point, you know you could kind of sleep better at night because you can screw up more things and not die. And so you could you could have employees leave, you could have a, a wrong go-to-market model. We'll, we'll talk about one of the mistakes if we have time where we went upstream to enterprise too quickly and we could recover from that mistake. And so there's just a lot more. Uh, mulligans you can have once you're kind of in that one to 10 scale. Whereas before before that series B, and especially before that millionaire R, you can't make that many big mistakes and survive. I do want to get into that. And I also want to get into how you started to expand the product as well. But on that note, as we think about product here, uh, everyone listening, I want you to just take a moment to reflect on what are you doing with your product? And how are you building it? How are you building it from day one? And how are you scaling it up? If that's an area where you need help, well, guess what? We've got some friends named Akeva. They are the software development partner that's going to help you go from zero to one. So as I like to say, whether that's blockchain or no chain or web three or web two, or it's a mobile app or a B2B SaaS-like work ramp, Akeva builds it at startup speed and enterprise level refinement. And that's why startups like Stride Health, Haveno, Olive, Side, and so many more trust Akeva from their first dollar all the way to their billion-dollar valuation. And they're here and they're ready to help you become the GOAT to market. Just recently, uh, I referred one founder to Akeva because they said, hey, we're about to onboard these new enterprise clients and we got to make sure that you know, the tech doesn't break. Uh, there was another founder who was like, hey, like our app can only do this much. We need, to, we need it to get further down the roadmap to get here. And I was like, talk to Akeva. If you haven't even built your app yet, talk to Akeva. Their co-founder is a separately a tech startup founder himself, aside from launching this. So you know he knows exactly, and he's built into the ethos of the team there. They know exactly what you're going through on your journey and at what stage you need to make what decisions. 
to make sure your tech is going to be solid and not break as you grow. So Akeva is where it's at. If you want to learn more, just head to akeva.io. That's A-K-A-V-A dot I-O. Today on the Goat to Market show, we're with Ted Blosser, the co-founder and CEO of WorkRamp, talking through their journey of scaling from a million to $10 million. So Ted, before the break there, you mentioned um, the mistake of you know going upstream too quick. Share more on that. Yeah, this is one classic founder mistake we made where when you're sitting in the boardroom, when you're scaling one to 10, the natural reaction or prevailing wisdom of, of most board members and um, even internally was, Hey, let's go, let's go Wilhelm. Let's go, let's go upstream. We had a couple big wins under our belt um, that we had closed. These are like the work Kivas of the world, the boxes of the world. And we said, Hey, you know what? We could go do this uh, uh, at a 10x scale, right? Let's go get every, every other customer that's enterprise onto our product. So we, and I was more comfortable in enterprise personally. I came from Cisco. So I understood how to value sell. I knew how to sell to executives. And so we spent a good, let's call it six to nine months prepping our team to have um, uh, basically a big bet mindset. So they would have to go get big bets on their, in their pipeline. They would have to learn how to uh, sell to executives. We'd have account planning sessions. We just pretended like we were enterprise customer, i uh, sorry, enterprise vendor. And what hmm. happened at that time, our next, let's call it 20 deals, we won like our, our win rate was like a quarter of what it normally was. We were just losing these deals left and right. And we weren't even getting close. It wasn't like we were second and we basically missed, missed the final mark with maybe some execution issues. We were like fourth, fifth, sixth in a lot of these evaluations. We weren't even close. And it was a good humbling lesson is like, hey, even though you've won a few deals, um, that you might have been lucky on, or you had some strong champion come inbound, doesn't mean you're ready to go. Now, on the flip side, what we were ignoring was where the traction was actually coming from, which is mid-market SMB. In our world, this is this is um, sub couple thousand employees where we were getting a lot of inbound there, but we were kind of ignoring it because we 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 were kind of telling ourselves this lie that we should go upstream. And so the learning lesson there is, and then we pulled back downstream. And now that's kind of where we own the category for now. Right now, it's anything kind of sub 5,000 employees is really our sweet spot or groups that are sub 5,000 within companies. Um, but when we came downstream, everything started to click a lot more. And mm. so um, Brian Halligan at HubSpot said this. He had a very similar issue where he was very focused on enterprise. It was unnatural for him to come downstream. But once he did, growth really to start to take off. So good learning lesson. A lot of founders out there that... Hey, even though people say enterprise is where you want to go, it's not always the case. There are plenty of great companies that could be built in the SMB mid-market uh, segment. I love that. And as you started to then hone in on this as your mid-market, you did something that I think goes against the grain of what's typically advised, which is you started to expand the product, right? I think the most people will say like, no, no, just sell one thing scale it up, get really good at selling that, You know, be ultra focused, ultra specialized, ultra niche. Um, around the $2 million mark though, is when you started to expand, you launched your second product. So what was the second product versus the first? And, and why did you decide to you know, buck conventional wisdom? Yeah. This is, this is really unique to us as well too. And it was a hard decision to make. I had to pull the whole company along. Most people didn't think we should do it. 
And in our category, there's really two, two types of learning. There's internal learning and there's external learning. And so internal learning is where you train your employees. External learning is where you train your customers and your partners. And what we decided we needed to do was go build this second product, even though we were at only 2 million ARR. This is a lot like Atlassian who built both Jira and Confluence at the same time. But the reason we had to do this is because every deal we were in was feeling like a knife fight. And so every deal is all about execution. We were competing against competitors like the Lessonlees of the world, Absorb of the world, Absorbs of the world. Every deal was like, hey, can we flawlessly execute? And so what we realized is, hey, we need to go play checkers while, uh, sorry, we need to go play chess while everyone else is playing checkers. And so when we release that second product, what it allowed us to do was significantly increase our win rate because the conversations were totally different than we were having before because we had this whole second product on the playing field. And so we essentially changed the name of the game to switch around how we could actually go um, uh, uh, impact the market. Mm. Now, in you've talked about understanding the market and, and the category that you play in. One of the things you talked to me about earlier on before we were on air was this idea of category creation, right? Which I'm a big advocate of. I like to champion that. You know, you had previously told me like, eh, I don't know. You know, I think maybe it's about, uh, it's not so much about category creation. So what, what's your stance there? Yeah, it, it was really interesting. I had this book recommended to me. Uh, play Bigger, I, pre- I presume. Play Bigger, yep. yes, Play <laughs> Bigger. And, you know, I love this book. I read this book and I was just hyped after reading it. And, and this was back, this is back in the zero to one phase where, where I was like, you know what, we need to have a category that we define for ourselves. And we call that category at the time, it, we called it business execution. And we're like, let's go be the business execution platform it had nothing to do with learning. We just said, Hey, if you learn, you can execute better as a business. And so you would hear that and it would sound kind of sexy on paper, but we get to customer calls and they're like, wait, what, what's business execution? Isn't that what like Workday does? Isn't that what like my CRM does? Like, why are you guys the business execution platform? And it played well in the investor pitch because investors are like, yeah, that sounds cool. Let's go, let's go invest in that. It's easy to explain to partners as a big vision. But what we were really ignoring was all of our all of our customers and prospects are like, oh, you're an LMS. Like, we're looking for an LMS. Are you an LMS? <laughs> and I literally wow. shy away from saying the words LMS. And so for me, the learning lesson there was we weren't actually defining a new category. We were redefining a category. And at the top of the call, we talked a little about, uh, on the top of the podcast, we talked a little about redefining the category as a way to go because SaaS pretty much has every category built for it right now. But you have the opportunity to say, hey, I am the Gen 2 version of this category. I'm the Gen 3 version of this category. I'm AI infused now. That's where the market's going. Or, hey, I am more platform-based. That's where the market's going. Or I am a bundled solution. That's where the market's going. And so that's where we were able to say, hey, we, we are redefining how this category should be built. And for us personally, we said, hey, the, the future of this learning category is what we call the learning cloud. Um, it is a new age LMS, which bundles all of your different learning needs onto one platform itself. Hmm. You know, I think, so what I'll share sort of in response to that, like 
for our clients at Startup Hype Man, our, the, specifically the, our sales narrative clients, what we work to accomplish is them carving out their own category. However, what we don't obsess over is what is the name of the category. It's more so can we develop a narrative that gets people to think differently about their situation? And the name can be figured out like once you've kind of started to bring people, you know, into a certain promised land. But I, you know, I don't know how this collides or aligns with the play bigger philosophy, just because I can't remember everything from the book off the top of my head. But like, I don't think you have to on day one necessarily be like, it's this category. I think you need to start talking about it in a certain way. And then through that, you know, if you find a different name for it, great. Or if you, if it's technically the same category, but you're, you're executing on it in a, you know, totally unique way, then you've started to shift the mindset of, of who's there. Um, and the other thing this makes me think of too, is like um, recently inside of our, our founder community, Goat to Market Club, we did a strategy drop, which is our, our monthly workshop series. And it was on building your brand's cornerstone belief or keystone beliefs rather. And one of the big like um, exercises we went through in that is how do you, um, how do you tell your market how they should be thinking about their situation, their problems, et cetera? And one of the phrases that came up was like almost like a, a template phrase is, um, you know, here's the state of this or here's the issue with this. Most people think it's a this problem. It's actually a this problem, right? Like I think a, a, a random example that I thought of was like, if you take Peloton, right? Um, you know, um, it's hard to get motivated to work out at home. Most people think it's an equipment problem. It's actually a community problem, right? Like that now you get someone to be like, wait, what do you mean when you say that? And I feel like similarly, you were injecting your brand, work brand, work ramps brand, like keystone, cornerstone beliefs into these conversations. Yeah. What we were missing though, and exactly in that. Peloton example. I'll give you give you more of a another example I had when I was evaluating other software earlier on when we bought Gong. And Gong did something really smart against Chorus. It's the it's the mm -hmm. call recording software if you're yep. not familiar, if anyone's not familiar with that. And you were buying them because they had the baseline functionality. So you would get on the call and be like, hey, do you have call recording? Show that to me. And that's similar to us. It was like, hey, did are you an LMS? Show me your LMS features. That's fine. You need to make sure you check that box on the call. But if they're taking 10 vendor calls and we were taking a couple of vendor calls, you need to you need to lay the foundation of how you're different. And then the gong example, the way they're different is they say, hey, we do call recording, but what we're really doing is revenue intelligence. Let me show yes. you these three or four other things you're doing. And that was what we missed in the pitch. We were only showing the three to four other things we were doing differently. So that was that was kind of yeah. like hey not, that was not, the new but fun not stuff. executing on the basics but or not, not executing on the basics yeah. yeah which is is usually um what I see startup founders make the mistake of they they just go jump to the the shiny fancy differentiators you need to talk about that but you need to make sure you get the checkbox checked for why they're cutting a check in the first place and then over time you can upsell them cross sell them and get them into other products but you got to make sure you get the core category core budget locked in first before you explain the differentiators, but you should, all sh you should always explain the differentiators because that's what they will remember. And that's, what's going to win you the deal. 
the gong chorus war from 20 let's call it 17 or 18 to 2021 i think there should be a book written about that and apple tv plus should commission a show on it uh <laughs> there was a fantastic linkedin thread i don't remember the author who like yeah this outreach outreach guy right I think uh, so. He was like, I had a first, I had a front row seat to the gong yeah, chorus yeah. war. And one of the things really he talked threat. about in that, that was so, to your point was like, he said, chorus continued to trumpet their technology. Gong trumpeted the market and yeah. the utilization of the technology. Yep. Even That's though they had, on. you know, they were, they were fundamentally building the same things, right? One yeah. spoke to it in more or less customer language. The other one spoke to it in engineer language. Yeah, for sure. Conversational intelligence versus revenue intelligence, just right mm-hmm. there, right? It's yeah. like who everyone in a company has conversations, uh, <laughs> but not everyone in the company works on revenue. So let me do one final question here before we begin our wrap up. Um, you know, we've talked about the journey of one to 10. What are your early predictions here from the, in the next milestone, which would be 10 to 100 million? Mm. Man, you know, this is a, this will be a really fun and interesting time. Obviously, our our next milestone we're trying to get to is a hundred million dollars, and and you know what's interesting? I talked to a lot of founders, and so many companies stall. I would call it between twenty five to fifty million ARR. That's really I call it like the slowdown period. That's the period you know whether you're going to make it to become a IPO bull company or if you're more of like a private equity company or let's say you, you transition a little more into bootstrap lifestyle type of mm-hmm. uh, business. And for us, the thing we need to nail, and and I got this advice from Jack Altman, our board member, CEO of Lattice, is the thing that accelerates you in these phases these days is continued product innovation on your market. And so for us, we took an approach where we're going down market, bundling learning solutions. We want to handle every single learning program within a company and leverage product momentum and innovation coupled with great distribution. And we think that's what's going to get us to 100 mil. And so right now I'm literally spending half of my time on on product R&D, making Mm -hmm. sure we're rolling out the right products. We have a lot of great products in the pipeline. And then two, making sure we have a really well-oiled machine on the go-to-market front. The companies, I think, that slow down in that in that time period, like I mentioned, are usually not executing on one of those fronts. Either they kind of stop innovation and focus too much on go-to-market and distribution, or uh, they they um, do a lot of innovation and they, they, they just kind of mess up their go-to-market. Uh, but if you can, you have to nail two. Unless you're you're just money's just falling in your lap and you and you stumble on something crazy, but usually enterprise SaaS, you have to nail both of those really well to propel into 100 million with momentum, and so um, and 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 not be a geriatric by the time you get to 100 million dollars. Uh, <laughs> so right, let's begin our wrap up. Where can our listeners find you and learn more? Yeah. So personally, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I spend most of my time. So I, I connect with anyone on there. So just send me a connection request uh, to the profile name, Ted Blosser. Um, uh, and uh, uh, if you want to learn more about the company, workramp.com is our domain. Uh, you can connect there as well. Who is one person you want to shout out who's been influential on your journey? You know, I'll shout out someone recently um, that's a little more top of, line, top of mind, our uh, CRO, Lori Jimenez. She just uh, came on board. She was a former colleague of mine 
um, but she's really brought in a new perspective, a new sense of rigor and discipline into the company. Really great culture fit. And she was she's she's uh, doing a great job as our new CRO. Really excited to see uh, what she's going to bring uh, to the company. We'll now do our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on our discussion today. I'll go first, then I'll toss it over to you. The topic today was scaling from one million to ten million. We talked all about a lot of good stuff in this episode. Um, I think what I want to what I want to dial into and make sure everyone walks away with is the importance of focusing on distribution at scale. Unlock distribution at scale and everything becomes easier from there. Ted, one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners. Yeah. I think the biggest thing, this is just a theme across a couple of topics we talked about. is just don't be too proud or tied to your idea. Um, Listen to what your customers are telling you. I was too proud thinking about the category we were creating. I was too proud around Hey, focusing on just one segment, right? Uh, but but kind of toss that aside. You just got to do what customers are asking you. That's where you'll get your growth. And uh, basically, uh, don't have uh, uh, too strong a beliefs that you hold on to because the market's always changing. And you can most most likely you're always wrong. Got to make sure what the, what the market listen to what the market's telling you. My final question, which is how we end every episode on this show, fill in the blank, Ted. Entrepreneurship is blank. You know, I would say entrepreneurship is um, a marathon that requires consistency. And so, especially in the enterprise SaaS category, you see Jason Lemkin talk a lot about that. It's a 10 year plus journey. It's totally true. Be ready for the marathon, be consistent, but bring it, bring the energy every day um, to make sure you can keep everyone motivated. Entrepreneurship is a marathon. It was a marathon that requires consistency. Is that right? Yes, exactly. All right, exactly. I love it. I wish. I. I mean, I. I have a hundred more questions I want to ask Ted and listeners. If you have questions as well, I'm sure there's a lot of more things that are bubbling up to the surface as you've been listening to this. Guess what? The journey doesn't end here. Ted's going to hop into the Goat to Market Club this whole first week that this episode is live, and that's where he's going to be doing an Ask Me Anything directly with you. So get your questions ready. He's going to ask, he's there to answer. If you've got questions around how they decided that they were going to redefine the category, how they started to you know, expand the product and continue their go-to-market journey. If you've got questions about what it's like being a startup founder with three kids, right? These are all questions Ted is happy to answer inside Goat to Market Club. So if you're not a member, what are you waiting for? Join at startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. That's startuphypeman.com slash GTM or startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. Your first month is free and then it's $9 a month after that. You can cancel anytime. Join now to get that AMA with Ted. Once again, Ted, thank you for joining us today on the Goat to Market Show. Raj, it's great being here. Thank you. That does it for this week's episode. Thank you again to our guests for joining and sharing their knowledge. Did you like what you heard? Well, leave us a rating and review on your podcast app before you head out of here. And while you're at it, who's one friend who you think would find value in hearing today's conversation? Go ahead and share the episode with them. I would really appreciate it. And I thank you for doing that. Remember, we've got more going down with our guest inside Goat to Market 
club. Think of it like the after show, the after party, the after hours special. Our guest is going to hop inside the club and do an Ask Me Anything. So you can follow up with any of those questions that came to mind as you were listening. You can follow up and ask them to our guest inside our club. To join, just head to startuphypeman.com slash gtm dash club. Startuphypeman.com slash gtm dash club. GTM Club is $9 a month, but your first month is free. You can cancel any time, and you're not only getting the AMAs, you're also getting our monthly strategy drops that are for members only, where we're teaching hyper-specific tactical go-to-market strategies, plus cool member-to-member interactions and other bonus resources. All of that happens inside the club. So again, startuphypeman.com slash GTM dash club. We'll see you inside the club, and we'll see you next week. But before you head out, remember, why be a unicorn when you can be the GOAT?